Blog Talk Radio. And this is the flagship show of the Rattledge and Broadcasting Network, the one that got it all started. This is The Long Road to Ruin. With me tonight is my co-host and buddy. We've taken about a month off. Uh, We've gone and done our own thing. We've revived our batteries, and we are ready to tackle the world of movies that uh, that have been folks. Never do your colors for uh, another person's canvas. Here he is, Mr. Sean Comer. How do you do, sir? Welcome back, everybody. I'm Sean. You're not, and you're listening to our show. Some changes uh, for the show in the year 2016. I'm not going to uh, play mood music anymore before we start the, the discussion. One of the reasons is these shows are all going to be uploaded to YouTube, and every time I do that, I I, I apparently offend the copyright gods. <laughs> yeah, I was going to ask you what the hell the deal was with not starting this show with that stirring, absolutely gorgeous, evocative Howard Shore score that I love so much. I I know. I, I was debating back and forth doing um, Blind Guardians, Lord of the Rings, um, but then I got to play the whole thing. Uh, I was thinking about the, uh, I can't remember the name of the woman, but she, the woman who sings the th- song about Gollum uh, in the Two Towers, which is which is amazing. There's so, oh, much, there's yeah. so much music that comes, out of the, that comes out of it. And I said, you know, I, I would love to continue to play mood music before each discussion, <clears throat> but like I said, YouTube's a fucker. So <laughs> every time I upload these things, I, 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 get, I get a message going back, you can't do that. So uh, I have no more music, unfortunately, but that's okay. That just means we get to well, talk well, a now, little bit. Now, now, wait a second. Wait, wait. Now, now, that brings to mind another question, though, and it's one that very early on in the show that you and I, I think, realized we would have to tackle. Uh, what do we do about the theme music? Because I seem to recall a conversation that I had with a surprisingly personable EMI lawyer just kind of asking about what-if scenarios. Um, in which he said he was pretty sure we couldn't get uh, Long Road to Ruin cleared without paying something to either the label or the publishing company. Well, it's funny you mentioned that, and that's why I, that's why I made these decisions. Uh, the first show we uploaded, that's why I haven't gone back and uploaded any more of them, um, because I, I know this is going to be an ongoing issue, uh, 
when I, when I uploaded the Mighty Ducks, of course, you know, it begins with Long Road to Ruin, and then I got the copyright thing. And from what I was told, basically, as long as I'm not making money off those shows, it's fine, I can leave it. Or I can change... Uh, or I can change the starting time so that it doesn't start with the music. You know, um, so, YouTube will so, so have the first part. It, 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 it's, it's a choice between we either leave the theme music in and continue to do the show for possibly no money, or we <laughs> possibly swap it out in favor of maybe getting advertising revenue? Uh, on YouTube, yes. I mean, obviously it stays in on Blog Talk Radio, and this hasn't been an issue yet. Um, yet. Mm. <laughs> on YouTube, I either have to cut the beginning out entirely or leave it up there and, you know, you know, when asked, tell these people, <laughs> but it's, but it's, this. we're not getting any money for this. Why are you bothering us, us little piss uh, fans? Um, well, yeah, so, so far, no, we're not. I mean, when, when I asked about it at the time, I asked about it because I was obviously thinking big and wondering, well, okay, what if this one day catches on? And, uh, I mean, obviously, we're not going to be making, like, PewDiePie money off of our little rinky-dink ragtag podcast. Wait, let me explain something. What if... 20 people are subscribed to my YouTube channel. 20. Okay. We're we're, going to be okay for now. And if I have to go back and, you know, and edit some of these, I will. Yeah, Um, either that that or maybe we go on... uh, We hit up Fiverr or something and try to find somebody to write us a new theme tune. That'd be cool. In the meantime, here we are again, and we are, uh, and that's that's really it. We got a lot of shows lined up. I got the schedule planned out all the way to June. Um, I know people are used to us going every other week. We aren't going to be strictly going every other week. There are going to be some weeks where Metal Hammer of Doom is going to go back to back. There are going to be some weeks where we go back to back for one reason or another. Um, I'm trying to do a little bit more uh, synergistic planning with the schedule with regards to this show having somewhat of a theme connected to whatever movie is being reviewed for that same week and the Metal Hammer of Doom reviewing an album closer to its, uh, to its drop date. Um, in some cases, it couldn't be avoided and things are happening weeks later, but you know, you'll see that as 2016 moves on. But like I said, we have a lot of topics, a lot of movies to get to <coughs> this year, um, and we're starting off with a bang here. This this show is going to be special. We have a guest with us um, also, and uh, I'm glad this guest is here because this, this this show is going to be monumental, and I'll tell you why. If you've listened to our show in the, in, in the past two years, Sean and I, not purposefully, and not, not you know, and it's not really a gimmick, but we can be negative. We, we have certainly ripped some movies to shreds, and I think rightly so. Some movies needed to be ripped to shreds. We're starting off 2016 with a trilogy of movies that are damn near perfect. Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings trilogy, there's almost no criticism. It, it, it is probably the most closest to perfect thing ever captured on film. And I don't have a whole lot to complain about. So you're gonna so for the next two hours, at least from my part of it, other than a couple of quibbles about Return of the King, you're basically just gonna hear me write a love letter to Peter Jackson. When we get to the Hobbit, that's a whole other story. But the, but the Lord of the Rings, I just sat and watched watched it again. It's pretty amazeballs. And speaking of amazeballs, let's get to our guest. 
uh, he just kicked down the door here at the Rattle and Broadcasting Network Studios and said, I demand to be a part of this. I said, who the hell are you? And he said, I am Andrew Graham. Hello, Andrew Graham. Hey, guys. How's it going? Hey, Andrew. I'm sorry sorry for all the other time. My scheduling fuckery has pretty much shit-canned the other podcasts you wanted to be on. (laughs) Oh, no worries at all, man. I'm glad to be a part of it this evening. Well, we're glad uh, to have you. After the earlier conversation, can we just call Dave Grohl? He might just sign over the rights, no problem. God, <laughs> you know, Andrew, you're you're Canadian. You're almost unnaturally polite. Could you talk to him? I'll see what I can do. <laughs> Thank you, <laughs> Andrew. Um, now, I, I made a joke there about you uh, kicking down the door, but honestly, you you made it a point to want to be on this podcast. Why don't you spend some time and sort of give us your background, your relationship to the Lord of the Rings trilogy, and tell us uh, why this is so special and what it is that you wanted to talk about this evening. Um, sure. Um, uh, I'm sure. actually going to... Zuri? Go ahead. Oh, um, well, I'm actually going to start off by admitting that I've never actually read my way through all the books, and to be perfectly honest, I didn't actually know about these movies until I saw the first kind of mega trailer for them back in, uh, I guess, about 1999, 2000, when they announced that these were even coming together. And then the trailers came out. They looked interesting. And I think it ended up being my my dad, who's a, a big fan of, of sci-fi, high-concept fantasy, anything like that, who ended up saying, I think, opening weekend, let's go see this. And uh, I think basically as soon as I saw Fellowship of the Ring, we were hooked. And uh, about eight years ago, when uh, the first Christmas I had with, with my girlfriend at the time, who's now my wife, um, we were house sitting for somebody, and I think I had all of the, we are looking for stuff to do, and we had, uh, I think I grabbed the uh, the extended editions of all three of the Lord of the Rings movies, and we started watching those around Christmas, and that's what we've done every Christmas since then, and we've now included that to go beyond December, because there's not six weeks in it, and we have to cover all the movies. And it's just, uh, you know, I mean, it's just a great set of movies. But, you know, like you said, the first, the uh, Lord of the Rings are, are virtually perfect. And, uh, yeah, let's get into it. When I was a kid, um, my father had read all the books. And my father, I, lo- I love my dad. We have a really good relationship now. But I, I, I don't want to say we had sort of a contentious relationship as, a, as uh, when I was growing up. Suffice it to say that he took great pleasure in um, not bullying me as such, but, you know, scaring the shit out of me, <laughs> you know, torturing <laughs> me on some occasions, you know, like a father does, I guess. And I remember when the, I believe it was Rankin and Bass, uh, I've got the cartoon company correct, the, the, uh, the yeah, people that did The Last Unicorn, um, they did the, the, the Hobbit, and then they did The Return of the King which I want to talk about in just just a minute how odd that cartoon is. But I remember seeing both of those as a kid, and uh, especially The Return of the King. It's so grim, and that artwork just really got to me as a kid. And my father thought that was hilarious and would constantly chase me around the house yelling, you're just a hobbit, as the orc does, uh, when he suddenly realizes Samwise is not, you know, some sort of crazy, you know, creature thing. Um, You know, he... (laughs) But where I'm going with this is that was sort of my introduction to the Lord of the Rings was the Rankin and Bass cartoons. And um, 
And so when they were coming out with, and then I went back and I watched the other, the, like the Bash Key uh, ver- version of the Lord of the Rings, which is only that fellowship of the two towers. Um, you know, just the, the Rankin and Bass one, it, it's, just, it's such an odd beginning. You know, it, it's basically told as a flashback, and um, it starts basically after Frodo has been captured and brought into the, brought into the tower by the orcs. And it's like if you're watching this, you have no idea where, where any of this is coming from or why it's happening. Um, you know, it, it, it starts to make sense a little bit as the narrative goes forward. But I just remember as a kid being just being scared and confused. So you know, years later when they're making the Lord of the Rings trilogy, I'm like, okay, now here's an opportunity to have, to have a fresh start. I'm an adult now. Um, I tend not to have nightmares about this sort of thing. And, you know, and, and, you know it's by actors I can enjoy. And I really, and I, and I sat down and I watched these things, and for the most part, it really knocked those memories out. And I have, re- and I have now really positive memories uh, and a positive sort of relationship to the, to the intellectual property um, of Lord of the Rings. I, and, and I watch it every couple of months. And I have the same reaction every time. I, as I tell him, Sean, I cry like a woman. I just, I, it's, it's so emotional. And as I get older, I think it gets even worse. I mean, that whole, we'll talk about it in a, in, in a little while, but when we get to Return of the King and that, that elongated sequences of endings, it starts with the coronation of Aragorn and ends with Sam uh, returning from the shore. I, uh, I, I'm, just a, I'm just a blubbering mess. I can't, I can't. I can't speak. Um, so, Sean, uh, we'll go to you. Kind of your thoughts on uh, on what brought you to the dance, and then we'll get into the fellowship. Well, you know, I didn't read any of the books through high school. Uh, I just I was aware of them. I knew that they existed, but I didn't really know all that much as far as what they were about, uh, what the crux of the story was. I was just aware that there was this book called The Hobbit that was supposed to be really excellent, really superb. And then there were these three books that came after it. But that was about it. And then I was kind of sucked in by the hype when news broke that The Lord of the that The Lord of the Rings was being made into a trilogy of movies. And so I started following that a little bit more closely and just getting a little bit more curious, a little bit more excited. Um, I didn't even see The Fellowship of the Rings in theaters. My first experience with that movie was the extended edition. Uh, I, of course, subsequently after seeing that, I, I, was, I was hooked like a hungry catfish. And there was no way I was going to miss The Two Towers or Return of the King. No way in hell. In fact, I think I saw them both twice. Um, I have all the extended editions on DVD. I watch them at least a handful of times every year. And, man, I hear you when it comes to that ending of Return of the King. And I think everybody sort of has their own little moments that are peppered throughout the trilogy that just really grip you in some sense or another, that just absolutely captivate you. They send your heart beating just a few beats per minute faster. Uh, we'll probably get to several of them as, as we talk about the trilogy itself because, God, I wouldn't even know where to begin uh, describing them all right now. But what I can say about it is a couple things. First off, 
as high fantasy being adapted to film goes, this is the Citizen Kane of of fantasy adaptation, bar none. It is perfect to the point of any nitpicks you hear about them are, by and large, just a couple things aside, mostly people who are just really reaching for a reason to hate something that everybody else loves. Like, it, like it's almost as bad as when you hear people say, oh, the Dark Knight really isn't that good. Yes, it is. Sure. <laughs> Or, or, or who, and there are people who will do this, I swear, who will try to pick apart reasons why they don't like The Godfather or The Godfather Part 2. Or things that they think just completely takes absolutely all the piss out of The Empire Strikes Back. No, no, no. You can't do it with these. As adaptations go, the makers of these movies took on a monumental task that was once thought to be impossible. And that was taking three of the densest, sometimes most laborious works to read in all of classic literature and try to whittle them down to roughly a time that would be palatable to theatrical audiences who were used to getting pretty much their full fill of a story in 90 minutes and anything at that point, by that time, if your movie's running time surpassed about two hours and ten minutes, you were pushing your luck with holding anybody's interest. Um, They not only managed to make three unanimously, universally beloved theatrical versions, but then proceeded to boldly put out three four-hour extended cuts that many people, myself included, love even more than the ones that that, that they saw in cinemas. Um, and you'll, you'll hear a lot of complaints about pacing and how they change certain events and kind of how they get certain points in the story. And look, the fact of the matter is, for the most part, it gets to all the same destinations it's supposed to. It's just that it's not so much like, you know, when I was going on Christmas break this year and I accidentally took a a wrong turn on Highway 40 in New Mexico and instead of going across Texas and most, most of Oklahoma, I ended up driving through the mountains of northern New Mexico, bypassing Texas entirely and spending half the time in Oklahoma that I did. It's not like that. It's more like you've got to drive eight blocks down the road to go and get milk and eggs. About four blocks in, you encounter a detour because of, because of an accident, but it's a minor one, so all you've got to do is just make make a right, a left, another left, and then a right, and all of a sudden you're right back on your path. That's about it. Uh, Otherwise, it flows perfectly. It is cinematically absolutely gorgeous. Uh, The casting is as close to perfection as anything you will ever find today. And the performances are absolutely, utterly, just about top to bottom, spellbinding. And that's to say nothing of the fact that I would go so far as to say 
it's some of the best special effects as far as CGI goes this side of Jurassic Park. You're not going to hear, at least from, from me, you're not going to hear a lot of, of comparison to the books. Um, I'm here to, you know, just to talk about the movies themselves and, uh, you know, as Sean said, the pacing and the cinematography and the performances. And I'm not really interested in, you know, the fact that Tom Bombadil doesn't show up. I don't care. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, there are other podcasts that sort of do that sort of thing. I'm not interested in how closely they resemble the books. I'm interested in how well uh, these movies were put together. So let, let's get right into it. Um, I want to talk about Elijah Wood. I think that's, that's as good a place as any to start. Elijah Wood and I think Viggo Mortensen uh, both sort of carry the picture on, on their shoulders. Um, maybe that's, there's room for debate about that. But I think if Frodo doesn't work and Aragorn don't work, uh, then the movie, the movies themselves start to start to fracture. At least that, that's my uh, that's my thesis. And Elijah Wood as Frodo, I know Sean said. First of all, all, all the casting is picture perfect. But I mean, Elijah Wood really goes far and far and beyond in capturing a uh, somebody who. Uh, and we'll go and we'll kick this around so for guys, a little bit. Can you meet me for a second, please? Say what? Sorry, can you mute me for a second? Oh, sure, go ahead. Yep, do your thing, man. Um, Elijah Wood uh, really goes far and away in capturing the spirit of of a character who uh, is your reluctant hero. You know, he's your your Luke Skywalker in this thing. Uh, And as far as, you know, somebody who this is thrust upon him, this mission. this is not something he wanted to do, but he feels that he has to do. And on top of that, he's dealing with an entity that is slowly but surely, uh, t- you know, taking him over, possessing him. You know, Sor- Sauron's will is in this ring, and this ring is doing its number uh, on his soul. And so, I'm, I'm so glad to hear you make the least of comparison. I really am. And say so what now? Well, I said I'm I, glad to hear you make the Luke Skywalker comparison because the truth is what the Lord of the Rings is as a whole, when you think in terms of the entire trilogy, it really is one of the most famous and obvious renditions of the monomyth, very simply. I mean, it's, and I think that's partially why these, these movies are so engaging is the fact that it is so familiar. Um, the shortened version of it, for those of you who have never read uh, Joseph Campbell's book, The Hero with a, Th- a Thousand Faces, is the idea that it's this same myth, this same story, that has been passed down, adapted, repurposed, etc., for ages upon ages. And it goes a, a little something like this, and I quote, A hero ventures forth from the world of common day into a region of supernatural wonder. Fabulous forces are there encountered, and and a decisive victory is won. The hero comes back from this mysterious adventure with the power to bestow boons on his fellow man. Okay. In this case, if you've ever seen this movie, right now, you're just going, yep. Frodo goes forth from his... Peaceful, simple, agrarian life in the Shire, 
into the realm of the big folk, the realm of men and elves and dwarves, dwarves and orcs, uh, based on a call to adventure, which is the idea that he has to bear away Sauron's destructive ring of power, first to the Council of Elrond, and then to Mordor to throw it in throw it into the fires of Mount Doom. And along the way, again, as I said, he encounters perils and dangers along along the way, things that he never dreamed he would ever face. Um, it is a descent into hell to the point of his character reaching a literal and metaphorical low of pretty much every level. And by the time he ascends from that and completes the circle, completes the journey. He, and I, I'm paraphrasing drastically, so please, please, nobody message me or harangue us on Facebook about this. I'm just trying to keep this brief. He eventually returns to, returns to his home, being able to walk in both worlds, the fantastic and the mundane, and, with, and often with the gift of a goddess which in this case I suppose you could call the gift of a goddess being uh, receiving the blessing of the elves to take the ring in the, to take the ring into Mordor and then upon returning he's brought peace to Middle Earth and he's of course in all finality given the gift of passage into the undying lands. So it's it's something that's very easy on that kind of intrinsic level to follow and understand what's going on. Yeah, as as long as you're paying even a modicum of attention. Now you also have a reluctant hero in Beagle Mortensen's Aragorn. Um Strider yes. is when we meet him. Uh Andrew, let's talk about that for a little bit. Because I know that differs from the book in terms of presentation. Uh, here we have a character who is ridden with guilt about about his family legacy, Isildur, uh keeping the ring for himself and then ultimately losing it in the river, uh, years later to be found by good old Schmiegel. But um, <clears throat> the temptations of man to do terrible things and all of that, you know, he rejects the kingship. He, uh, he uh, ad- adopts this um, life as a, as a ranger, renaming himself Strider, and any time it gets brought up that he is the rightful king of Gondor, like the Council of Elrond, um, when Legolas brings it up, and he's just like, hey, shut up, shut up. Beagle um, <laughs> Mortensen, I think, plays the role, uh, plays the role exquisitely. You know, he, he balances that, he, he carries with him definitely a regal visage, but he also... But you can see the guilt on him. You can see the um, he, the whole idea of him being king is uncomfortable. Um, he he, it's a it's a very good portrayal of a character in conflict, um, and, and somebody who, uh, you know, does does not want to go down that path, but is forced to. You know, uh, I'm going to give you an opportunity to jump in here. You know, he's forced into leading. The, along with Theoden, uh, the troops at Helm's Deep. He's forced into um, 
bringing the ghost army. Oh boy, do I have something to say about that later on? In you know, into the into the battle of Palinor Fields, he's the one that says, you know, screw it, we'll just go to the gates of Mordor and challenge Sauron face to face to give Frodo a chance. You know, these are all positions he's forced into, um, and you know, and ultimately, even when he's coronated, he's like, all right, <laughs> so I'm king, I got it, I'm okay with this. <laughs> I don't know. Those are all good points. I don't know if I'd say that towards the end he's forced. I think a lot of it is, and I mean, you know, the the shades of gray of every character in in these movies are fantastic. We'll probably talk about Thaden and, and how much I think that character is awesome. But with with Aragorn, I think it's interesting because, I mean, I, I was actually just reading or trying to read the book last week. I've since given up again. And he's much more nonchalant about the entire situation. And I think Peter Jackson's choice and, and you know, Viggo Mortensen's ability to really convey that misgiving about what's essentially his birthright really works within the movie. And a lot of what his story is, I mean, in some ways it's a long-term redemption story for man. It's him going through and, you know, finding that, finding that will to rule but without the love of the rule. You know, I mean, kind of the, you know, that old uh, saying that, you know, the uh, the people who most deserve power are the people who want it the least. And that's exactly what Aragorn's story is. Like, he, you know, he comes to that point. <clears throat> I mean, when we talk about the, the Battle of the Black Gates, I mean, at that point, he's not really forced into it. He's the one that suggests it. And he's accepted at this point that it's, that he, you know, that he's accepting who he is, who he was born to be, and uh, he does what he needs to do for, you know, the sake of his people. You know what? This is also one of the times where we really have to play the what-could-have-been casting game with a few of these roles. Um, Specifically, the other one uh, that we're going to have to play this with being Ian McKellen as Gandalf, who I presume we'll get to any minute now. But a uh, little fun fact here. Vigo was not necessarily the only one in the running. In fact, as it happened, one of the very first people to be offered the role but had to turn it down due to family obligations was no less than Nicholas fucking Cage. Oh, God. <laughs> elsewhere, elsewhere uh, Vin Diesel, who was a big fan of the trilogy, um, expressed interest in the role. Uh, Stuart Townsend was initially cast, but he was dropped because Peter figured out that he was a little too young for it. Uh, Russell Crowe actually turned the role down after being considered because he got what he thought would be a little bit too similar of a role in Gladiator. Um, Daniel Day-Lewis was offered the role twice and declined it both times. That would have been that would have been interesting. I mean, I think Vigo was the, was the end choice, but out of those guys, Daniel Day Lewis would have been the uh, the fun one. Would have been probably one of the more interesting versions. If Daniel guys, wouldn't have been a bad choice at all. In fact, let's see. In fact, ah, yeah, okay. I, I'm sorry, I skipped the line of my notes here. Um, he was actually first offered the part during pre-production. So Nicolas Cage, as I said, was one of the first ones, but not the first. Here's the thing. I can't imagine. I'm just thinking about when they're in the the, the the end of the Prancing Pony, and you have that exchange between Frodo and and Strider, and he's like, you know, you should be more careful considering what you carry on you. I carry nothing, indeed. 
if you're well, well, yeah, some... well, yeah, because now, now that I know that Daniel Day-Lewis turned it down twice, now I'm imagining in, instead, I drink your milkshake, Mr. Underhill. I drink it well, right on. <laughs> See, I don't go to that for Daniel Day-Lewis. I would go to Bell the Butcher. <laughs> That's the thing, uh, like, see, I, I'm I'm more of a there will be blood fan. So that means it doesn't show scenery in any part of this movie. It's an it's an understated performance, but I think that's what it needed. And so you're naming all these actors who I can't I can't for, I just can't see them in the role because I think you got you have Nicholas little occasion there. I don't know who's going to be eating up more people, the fucking you know Nazgul or him. Um, he's just. <laughs> He's just, he's just, he's just so big, and his performances are so big. You know, I, I can say, I, you know, you should be more careful with, with what you've got on you. I carry nothing. Indeed, you know, and I'm down doing Randy Orton. Um, I'm just like, I can't, I can't picture anybody having that sense of play the role small, act with mm. your body, and your eyes, and none of the people you just listed would have would have taken that to that role, which is what I think it needed. Well, um, I, mean, I, I think I think everybody else kind of has it, almost, but not quite the total package. Like, like for example, um, Nicholas Cage. Let's just get it right out there. Would have been all entirely fucking wrong. Yeah. Uh, Dan, uh, Daniel Day Lewis is so very method with how he approaches his roles that. I think that could have been interesting. Uh, Vin Diesel, oh, he could, he could have brought the physicality to it. But on the other hand, I also can't quite picture that same chemistry, uh, that same sense of destiny between Not for nothing, him and Sauron. If they're going to have Vin Diesel as Aragorn, then they should have had casted The Rock as Sauron. The Rice, right? Actually, right? um, <laughs> uh, uh, the Roxas is your candy ass out of Mordor. <laughs> uh, Stuart Townsend, uh, okay, never mind. He would have just been entirely wrong for anything except maybe an elf or another hobbit. Um, Crow, now you see, for all, the he get, for, for all the grief he gets, as long as he doesn't have to fucking sing, um, he's generally competent. I could have seen him being good, but as suited for the role as Vigo Mortensen was, or as or as Daniel Day Lewis could have been. Uh, no, no, it, it, it's like when I take into consideration that Jake Gyllenhaal was one of the 150 actors who auditioned to play Frodo. Nope. I no, no, and and this, and this would have been when he was, and this would have been when he was like. Fresh off Donnie Darko. Yeah, I, I think we can all agree that Elijah. The, the, there probably wasn't a better choice than Elijah Wood. That, that is a known actor. No, no, perfect. Um, I do, um, do want to talk about Ian McKellen, but I, I know that there were people who, when uh, the movie came out, really objected to Liv Tyler being in the movie, and I just want to get your opinions on this. Um, it was a it was a bone of contention because everyone else was everybody else in the movie nobody had any problems with you know Sean Astin got back to his part people loved that and you know and he was in the Goonies so he you know he people really? loved Sean Astin that was fine everybody else was pitch perfect and then and then Steven Tyler's daughter uh, walks out of a music video and into these movies and everyone's like what the fuck um, I personally didn't care that she was Arwen um, it's such a small role in my opinion that I was like oh fine just don't 
don't be terrible, and I'm okay with this. And she wasn't terrible, so I'm okay with it. But I'd like to, but uh, I want to ask Andrew and then Sean, Liv Tyler is Arwen. Any thoughts? I thought she was she was perfectly fine for, for the role. I mean, you know, I've I've watched all the the special editions and the um the frigging magnificent uh, special features they have on a you know the feature like length documentaries. And I mean, you know, she gets full credit for dedicating herself to the role. She went in there and she, uh, you know, she actually lowered the register of her voice to give it kind of that more ageless kind of old elf. I mean, she was a decent actress. I thought she had. Good chemistry with Mortensen. Um, yeah, she was fine. Sean? Well, you know something, Mean Gene. Quite frankly, not only do I not mind her for the role, but on repeated viewings, I actually completely understand it. And I'll tell you why. It's because anybody playing one of the elves has to be of a certain character consistently. And it's because they are, by and large, an inscrutable, wise, and very level-headed, reasonable race. And that has to come through in every aspect of sort of how mild and centered everybody comes across. It's one of the reasons why I feel that Hugo Weaving was so very perfect as Elrond. It's because anybody who's ever seen The Matrix knows that he can bring that across so damned effectively. I'll even give him credit for it in V for Vendetta, much as I hate that fucking movie. Um, if you'll permit me, if you'll permit me, Sean, greetings, Mr. Underhill. We've been waiting for you. Well, okay, exactly. You take that same kind of tone, that same kind of very measured, almost icy delivery that's uh, that's so calculating, but you just find a way to wring the evil out of it. It's the same thing that Kate Blanchett delivers. And for the longest time, I thought to myself, you know, really the two weakest actors in this movie are Orlando Bloom and Liv Tyler because they're just kind of the most dull, ineffectual one. Well, ineffectual is maybe the wrong word. Um, They're unaffected in terms of engagement, in that uh, to someone who really doesn't know what they're supposed to be seeing, they can come across as extremely flat, whereas they're simply playing the character's the way they should be coming across. And as you mentioned, Liv actually did put some effort into that. And, yeah, I could see how one would really look at her and say, so basically all she had to do was just come in and deliver every Liv Tyler performance ever. Um, Except for maybe Empire Records. Empire Records is fucking awesome. And I will cut no opinions otherwise. Um, and it's just one more sense in which, again, you can look at even the performances in, the, in these movies that you feel maybe fall a little bit, a little bit flat, 
that were perhaps underwhelming. But then you really think about it, and you think about the way they work into the whole. And then you ask yourself that one pivotal question. Okay, who else could I see playing this? It's like we just, what we just talked about in terms of Viggo Mortensen and Elijah Wood. Yeah, some of those other names sound impressive, and you could see how, yeah, maybe they might have been able to do something special with it. But given what we got, could you really have been as satisfied with anybody else except those two? And the answer will be no. And speaking of Vito, part of that is because one of the most surprising things is the kind of chemistry that she has in the love story between her and Aragorn. Which, folks, I don't mind telling you, you've, you've, a lot of you have been listening to these shows for a long time, and you know that it's kind, that occasionally something in a movie just really gets me, just holds to me. And arguably one of my favorite lines that just dampens my eyes every single time I hear it was I would rather share one lifetime with you than face all the ages of this world alone. If nothing else, she deserves to be remembered for just that one delivery as far as I'm concerned, just throwing everything else to the wind because it is so tender and so sincere and so so absolutely beautiful. It's it's utterly heartrending. Um, I totally agree with that. But uh, in terms of time and keeping the conversation going, let's get into. I want to actually talk uh, a little bit about the actual character of Gandalf. A couple mm-hmm. of things I picked up from discussions with other people, um, things that have been written online about it especially since the Hobbit movies have come out. And I want to throw this uh, out there to kick it around and see what you guys think. So the first part of this movie, we are we get to know the Shire. Um, you know, first there's the whole backstory to how the ring was created and the you know, downfall of the sealed door and all of that. And then there's this whole extended sequence right out of the book about, you know, Bilbo's 111th birthday party. And this is an opportunity to get to know our hero, Frodo, uh, get to know the Shire, see what the stakes are, see the world that is going to be in flames if this all if this whole thing fails. But one of the things that comes out of it is that uh, Bilbo, of course, does the does the vanishing trick at his party, and Gandalf sees it and and, and realizes, well, oh, some something some something's rotten in the state of Denmark here. Something's not right. Um, he goes. He. Uh, he talks to Bilbo, they have this exchange, and of course Bilbo is starting to have some issues because of the ring, accuses Gandalf of trying uh, of trying to steal it. Gandalf, you know, does his spooky thing where he scares the shit <laughs> oh, out of him. Oh god, that oh god, that moment. I, I I'm sorry. Uh, I just I, I have I have to gush about Ian McKellen for uh, for just a second. Um and, and okay. believe me, I'll try to I'll try to keep this brief. Uh first off, again, the what would have been game. Sean Connery was approached for this role, but he didn't understand the plot. Meanwhile, uh, Patrick Stewart turned it down because he didn't like the script. 
And actually, even getting McKellen into the role was a bit of a doing because as he was being cast at the time, uh, he and 20th Century Fox had to sort out a two-month overlap with shooting X-Men. Now, that little behind-the-scenes trivia being said, Ian McKellen as Gandalf is a big part of what I consider one of the definitive portions of any of the three movies that you could show anybody to get across why this trilogy is so great. And that is about the first, oh, 15, 20 minutes of Fellowship. And it's because it's an absolute masterwork of show, don't tell. And it's something that they do manage to do with every character throughout this movie in terms of showing us everything we really need to know about them. So absolutely, incredibly effectively, and so quickly and so concisely. For example, when we first meet Gandalf, okay, he's uh, trucking along in his cart and buggy toward, toward the Shire, and as we learn from the reactions to him and the things that he does throughout the next sev- several scenes, we find that some view him as an affectionate man of adventure. He's somewhat of of a character of whom some are very some are very fond. He's a harbinger of mischief and merriment and wonders for the eyes to behold. Others, you can tell from their much less pleased reactions, see him as the bearer of doom, trouble, danger, and overall very badness. He was labeled the disturber as, of the as as Frodo himself even points it points out he's been deemed a disturber of the peace. But what we find is that is that everybody from one person to the, from one person to the next recognizes and respects his great power. And I swear to God it would not surprise me to this day if upon recounting the scene in which indeed he blusters up inside Bag bag end and we get the cool lighting trick and he says Bilbo Baggins do not mistake me for some conjurer of cheap tricks I am not here to rob you it would not <laughs> surprise me if upon recounting that later Ian Holm admitted that he ruined one take by kindly exclaiming aloud poop <laughs> They managed. They managed to make him pretty much utterly terrifying in that in that instance. In fact, he's arguably more more intimidating than Christopher fucking Dracula, Count Dooku. What the hell are you talking about? I don't need to imagine being stabbed through the back. Lee was throughout the entire the entire trilogy, and they just do that time and again and again and again. And it's such a simple art of filmmaking that is the difference between something like The Lord of the Rings and something like The Dark Crystal or Krull. Um, Where I was going with the Ian McKellen thing uh, as Gandalf. Okay, so they they have that exchange and uh, you know, Bilbo gives him the ring and takes off for Rivendell. Uh, 
and the ring goes to Frodo. Now, it's not totally clear in the movie. It's sort of sped up for time. But essentially what ends up happening here is that Gandalf does touch the ring. He has a flash. Uh, there's a flash of evil, a flash of Sauron. And and then there's this, this sequence where he goes and does research and everything else. And, and here's my, my question. How after the adventures of The Hobbit, which are you know somewhat addressed in this, did he not realize that was the Ring of Power? I, it, it, that's always a question I've had, and you know I, I, we could spend all day sort of you know lambasting J.R.R. Tolkien for his narrative, uh, and I don't want to spend too much time on that. But I always felt like there are some gaping holes in the narrative that that don't make a whole lot of sense to me, and maybe they make sense to you guys, but. I always thought that when Bilbo came away from his travels in The Hobbit, how did Gandalf not know that that, that was the one ring? He, I, I, I don't understand how he, especially when you see the movies, how do you not know? You know I, I understand think, that he, he thinks it's, a, hang on, he thinks it's a, just a magical ring, but after seeing his reactions and everything else, it's like, no, this should have been this fairly obvious what it was. Go ahead. I, was about to say, I think the you kind of alluded to the one line there about, you know, he said there's many magical rings in, in Middle-earth, and that makes sense. And I think that's what he kind of took it for when, uh, when you know, during The Hobbit and everything like that. I mean, we'll talk about that in a couple of weeks. But I think the real tip-off for him as to what was going on was when he uh, saw Ian Holm for the first day, and he said, you haven't aged a day. Because I think that's mm-hmm. one of the tip-offs about kind of that unnatural mm-hmm. long life that they talk about when, when you have someone who's who's become a bearer of that particular ring. I guess it's been like 70 years or something like that since the adventures oh, of The Hobbit. At 60 years. And I'm just thinking in 60 years, with all the things that have gone on and the trouble, you know, the trouble coming out of Mordor, he never once thinks, hey, Bilbo's been, been a bit of a strange duck since then. I wonder if it's that crazy ring that he found. Not once. <laughs> you haven't seen him in a long time either. So it could have been it could have been ages. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it just it just always struck me as like why you know why here why now. <laughs> One thing, and, and and I laugh because I I really enjoy the series Everything Wrong with, and I understand that Everything Wrong with is more parody than it is an actual criticism. But the one thing they consistently make fun of are the Nazgul, who are terrible at their job. Inches from capturing Frodo <laughs> every single time. To the point where it gets silly, you know, I, I, I'm going to address specifically the scene. And, and, and on the one hand, it's great for creating cinematic tension. On the other hand, when you step back and look at it, you're like, how could you be this dumb? You, it, it almost betrays the character that it's this bad. They are, you know, at well, this point, they, they, they've run into Marion Pippin. Um, they're, you know, they're on their way to Bree. And this is the bit where... Uh, they they get pulled underneath the root of the tree, and uh, the Nazgul's presence to, uh, starts to overcome Frodo, and Frodo goes to use the ring, and therefore, if, you know, the power is sort of emanating, and the Nazgul is standing straight over them, sniffing like a dog, and <laughs> and, and I just, I just in my head like this <laughs> this guy is terrible at his job. Well, well, now, like, now, now wait a second. See. Are they are they that much more ineffectual than the fucking Urukai? <laughs> well, uh, 
100 Urukai versus versus Viggo Mortensen with a goddamn torque, and they all die. Oh, no, no, no. And you know that's I love the hell out of that scene. Well, and, and, and that's right. astonishing because they because they both look fucking pants shittingly terrifying, and throughout the movie, if you really kind of stack up their performance, uh, <laughs> Sauron might as well be trying to overtake Middle Earth with an army of Goombas and Koopa troopers. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's all about rough. how it's much they awesome. get done. Oh, I I have some disagreements with that, but we'll we'll get to that later. Um. You were starting to say something, Andrew. You guys kind of talked over each other. What, what was your point about just we're, we're sort of talking about the ineffectualness of the Urukai and the Nazgul in uh, well, uh, overall? That, well, the one thing specifically about that scene, which I guess they don't really explain on screen, is that they don't see very well. So they're mainly on on smell. And I mean, if Bro had put on that ring, then the game would have been up, right? Just the, the way they work. Like I mean. They were able to see him, find him, and stab him in the top of Weathertop, but it just seems to be the, it was, I think part of the tension was that, of that scene was that the Nazgul were right over him, and then also, you know, again, the ring kind of exerting its power to try and make Frodo put it on and, and use it and expose himself that way. And I, and I get all that. I understood the, the, the point of the scene. It's that... And I understand, you know, and this is sort of, you know, we talked about this when we talked about Star Wars. At some point, what do you want your hero to die in the first act of the movie? It just, it felt a little too close. And so, you know, he, so they, they, they stop him from putting the ring on, and suddenly, you know, the scent goes dead. And Naz was like, oh, he's not here, and, and moves on. Like, really? <laughs> all right, all right. Sure. Though, the book, happen- that happens like five times before they get to Rivendell. Yeah, I know. It's ridiculous. <laughs> There's not a lot of tension in the book, unfortunately. That's one of the things I kind of like about talking specifically about the Fellowship is that Peter Jackson was able to really, in some ways, scale the movie down and put a lot of tension, a lot of mystery around it, which I thought was was kind of a unique approach for for something in this genre. And and is one of the reasons I you know one of the reasons I really do love the Fellowship is because it's this very close, very tight, very kind of mystery like movie. I think. One of the ones I kind of compare it to around that same time frame is The Matrix, where you had that level of, of, you know, you're not 100% sure what's going on yet, but you know it's important. There are two things I want to talk about, and then we have to move this discussion forward because we spent almost an hour on this one movie, and we've got two big ones to go. Um, Number one, three things, actually, I want to mention. I'm going to just sort of lay these things out, and and you guys sort of um, respond to what tickles your fancy. There are, the first thing, uh, I would have liked a little bit more of what exactly corrupted Saruman. He he alludes to it a little bit. He talks about looking into the Palantir when Gandalf confronts him, or Gandalf goes to him for advice and finds out, you know, he's been betrayed. Um, but, you know, Saruman talks about, I've looked into the Palantir, I see that, you know, that that uh, that Sauron will will rule the rule of man rule the world of man, and uh, you know I want to be on the winning team. Essentially, is his argument. Um, but for somebody who, again, ignoring the Hobbit for a moment and how he's portrayed in that movie, he, what you're told about Saruman is that he's a wise wizard. You know, he's the head of the order. He's a good guy. And for someone to 
decide wholeheartedly to switch teams to be with the ultimate evil, I'm going to need a little bit more that I looked into the future, saw fire, and said, fuck it, I'm on the wrong side. Um, I, I just, I would have liked for there to have been a flashback of some sort, you know, or, you know, something, and, and again, I'm talking visual direction here. He holds the Palantir, and he's like, why should we be afraid to look into it? And show me what he saw. Because you don't really get a sense of that. You get... You, you, you get that he looked into it and saw something, but you don't know what it was. And now I, and I still don't feel like there was a strong enough hook there for him to go wholesale, I'm going to burn down the forest, create an, or, an army of mutants, and attack Rohan with it. I, I don't, you know, I'm going to go full-on full evil. So um, there's that. Um, this is just because of the, there's two main action sequences Two big battle sequences, I should say, in this movie, and they are, you know, far and away uh, smaller in scale than what you're going to see in the Two Towers and then in Return of the King, where everything is on a grand scale. So you've got the Mines of Moria battle sequence, and then you've got the uh, the last battle, you know, Baromir's last stand uh, with the Urukai, and what and in some ways despite the fact that they're not on such large scale as the Helm's Deep and the Battle of Pelennor Fields, what you also don't get is Ninja Orlando jo- Orlando Bloom. Almost Orlando Jones. You don't get Ninja Lady. <laughs> <laughs> One, I really enjoy, especially the, um, the Minds of Moria sequence, because... It's a it's a tight battle with them fighting for their lives in a very, very tight space. So, you know, almost if you follow my meaning, almost kind of like the hallway sequence in Daredevil, um, where it, it, it's very tight, it's very stylized, but what you're not getting is a lot of nonsense, like, you know, or you'll see in Return of the King where they just go full crazy with Legolas surfing down the, down the tusk of an elephant, you know, and doing crazy shit there. Um, so, you know, just I, I like, as much as I enjoy the Battle of Pelennor Fields and its grandness, I, there's something to be said for a very tight uh, fight in, in the minds of Moria where it's a little bit more believable. Um, and then the third thing, <laughs> in terms of a, conc- a satisfying conclusion to the movie, we all, we all know what happens. Baromir tries to take the ring. Uh, Frodo decides that this is going to end badly with everyone trying to rob me. So fuck it, I'm just going to go off on my own. Um, Sam goes after him. Uh, Mark Rattledge cries. <laughs> um, but I remember very distinctly, and this is why I wanted to bring it up. So uh, you have the let's go kill some orcs, which was a silly line. And then you have Frodo going off to the ring and the movie ends. And I remember one of my friend's girlfriend at the time, now wife, stands up and goes, wait, that's it? It's over? What happened to the ring? Where'd Frodo go? <laughs> Didn't, know <there> was... <laughs> Didn't know there were two other movies. <laughs> so I, I, I threw a lot out there um, for time's sake. There's, you know, there's the, um, the, the, the fighting style of Minds of Moria as compared to what you'll see in Helm's Deep in the Battle of Pelennor Field. Um, and the sort of the nonsense that happens in those two sequences. Um, and then the, the conclusion of the movie and my idea that I think there needed to be more from uh, from Saruman's turn. So I'll go to Andrew first. Uh, thoughts about any of those three ideas? 
Okay, uh, first one, um, I actually agree with you on that one, though looking at the two trilogies, I actually was expecting that one to show up in, in the Battle of the Five Armies, but we can leave that one off for a while. Um, I'll probably skip the third item because I want to concentrate on the second here because um, I'm, I'm a martial artist. I love any kind of fights in movies, and I love authentic ones. And mm -hmm. Legolas aside, that's what this this trilogy brings in spades and something that when you watch The Hobbit, I'll be ranting about in a couple of weeks from now. And there's <laughs> such an air of authenticity about it. Um, and if there's any fight scene I actually like, it's the one at the end of the movie. Um, a lot of what brings the authenticity to it, speaking specifically about Viggo Mortensen, is that, you know, he's your hero, but he's a dirty fighter. Like when he's got that entire group of, uh, of Urukai coming in, the first guy that comes at him, he steps out of the way and hamstrings him. No big move. It's just I'm efficient. I'm I'm lethal. I'm deadly. And I mean that's a lot of a lot of where it where it goes to with Vigo, with Boromir, with with Gimli in a lot of cases when he's not used as comic relief, where mm -hmm. you know you take hits, you get hit, you you know you sometimes ring something off armor, sometimes you find that spot where you can get in between and, and kill the guy and. It's uh, it's a really authentic fight scene. Something about Viggo Mortensen. So, um, one of the things, of course, they had was Weta Workshops was just working overtime to produce armor and swords. And when you're talking about movie fights, a lot of times either actors will use stand-in swords or aluminum swords because they're lighter. Um, for the most part, um, Viggo Mortensen was using what they call the hero sword, which was actually built out of spring steel, blunted edges, obviously, but... Um, I mean, a European longsword like the type he used is only about two or three pounds. But he said I, he still wanted to use it to to keep the weight and to keep the exhaustion as he went. He, he was very method about this. He actually even went so far that when he was filming, he only had that sword with him all the time. He'd go to dinner, he'd be eating dinner, and the sword would be propped against the table. And a lot of the uh, wow, a lot of the reason this comes across as so authentic is who they picked to do the um, do the fight choreography for it. And it's a gentleman by the name of Bob Anderson. I believe it was a, an Olympic fencer, but then also mm -hmm. got into a lot of movies. And I mean, if you pick a great um, a great sword fight scene, kind of a more the European style, out of the last forty fifty years. Then he's done it. He worked on Star Wars. He was actually Darth Vader. He worked on. He worked with Errol Flynn. He worked with. Um, the, you know, The Princess Bride is one of his high achievements. He worked on Zorro. He worked on Bond movies. He worked on just about everything, and um, he was very good at kind of tailoring his art. And the scene at the end I kind of referenced to uh, was actually Vigo's first day on set, and uh, you know he was able to coach him through and make it one of the more engaging and one of the more uh, authentic fight scenes. And I think that's really something that sets a lot of these movies apart from a lot of other places. And I would say even sets it apart from the hobbits. Cause I've got some gripes about that one that we'll get to in a couple of weeks. <laughs> Apologies for sure. the, for the uh, tangent. No, that's fine. No, that's just good stuff. Um, that's why I'm, I'm glad you're on the show to bring that kind of, that sort of thing to the table. Sean, Saruman, the ending of the, uh, the ending of the movie, how it ends or, um, the fight sequences. Oh, Jesus. I absolutely love the fight sequences. Uh, Minds of Moria is one of my absolute favorites, just <laughs> including the fact that I just love the delivery of the line, they have a cave troll. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I, 
course they have a fucking video troll, that. because why not? Um, can, can we quickly acknowledge uh, how awesome Sean Bean is? Oh, Jesus, Boromir, I was just getting to that. Um, I get, he's, he's outstanding throughout the entire, entire movie. But, God, I get such a charge out of watching him just absorb arrow after arrow after arrow and just keeps moving forward and keeps slashing and stabbing and killing. I love it. <coughs> um, it's just, again, it is one of those little things where maybe you don't look at it and think of it as a huge part of the story or anything. Or anything, but just it's uh, the way it's shot, the way the way it's paced, right down to the way Sean Bean, who is legitimately quite possibly one of the toughest fucking people in the UK, um, just, just how much absolute legit presence he brings to it. I mean, this is a guy who was famed for once when he was at a pub with his wife or girlfriend, I forget which. Um, but he, but basically, someone tried to, you know, pick a fight with Ned Stark, and stepped outside. Uh, over the course of the fight, he managed to get stabbed, but fight, fight was over. As I seem to recall, he won, and then it just goes right back in. It just goes right to his drink. <coughs> um, but uh, overall, yeah. Um, I'm I'm going with with Minds of Moria, with the Minds of Moria, just because it's it's so beautifully shot, so wonderfully acted. It, it's quite easily some of John Rhys Davies' best work of all three of all three movies. Um, and it, it ends in, in my opinion, just about a perfect place. Again, I know people get. Some people get really unnecessarily salty about where Fellowship ended. I have no problem with it. I thought it was I thought it was paced beautifully and ended exactly where it did. Let's go kill some orc. <laughs> there are some <laughs> over the top silly lines. We shall be the Fellowship of the Ring. Yes, we shall. Roll credits. Yeah, but uh, they also took the piss out of that straight away by having. So, where are we going? <laughs> Come on, that. I love, that and I, lo- I love that. That's where the first disc ends. If yep. you're watching the extended version. Yeah, and then Gandalf's looking around. And goes, oh shit! You fool of a <laughs> two. All right. Um, that, I, we gotta. In the interest of time, we gotta move on here to the two towers. Um. <clears throat> Yes, look, there's a lot. There's, there's so much more that could be said about about the Fellowship of the Ring. Some say it's the best out of the three. Um, in a in a lot of ways, it is um, because, like I said, the battle sequences get grander but sillier, uh, and 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 with the return of the king being the absolute silliest at times. Um, yeah. The performance is strong throughout, but you know, it, but in terms of you know, gravitas and and, and and emotionality. I think the Fellowship of the Ring uh, keeps it nice and tight. Uh, you know, the Two Towers, much like the Empire Strikes Back, is very dark, and it's you know, and it and it, uh, and we'll talk about that now. It uh, you know, it connects the beginning and the end. Obviously, it's the middle chapter, 
and it and it's a perfectly serviceable middle chapter. It's an outstanding movie. Don't get me wrong, but I would not seek to argue with people too much who say that the Fellowship is probably the best of the three. Uh, when you look at every category and compare them to one another. Um, so unless there's a burning desire here uh, from either of you, burning desire, burning desire, let's get into uh, the two towers. So uh, the, the, the bulk of this movie, you have three stories here. You have Marion Pippin uh, walking through Fangorn Forest and eventually convincing the Ents to march on Isengard. All right? So there's that. Uh, you have the, the 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 main story, in my opinion, is uh, Saruman's attack on Rohan, which ends with Helm's Deep. Um, and then you have Frodo and Sam on their continued journey to Mordor, where they are joined by good old Schmeagel. And let, let's let, let's just say right here and now, because I don't think he did, but Andy Serkis really should have gotten an Oscar nomination for that performance. Uh, whether it be for, whether it be for Two Towers or for The Return of the King, his portrayal of Gollum. I mean, you talk about a tortured creature and, and everything else. It's so good, and he's so good at that. And it, you know, as Frodo has sympathy towards Gollum, you know, and sort of sees the possibility of himself becoming him, and and showing mercy upon him for sort of that reason among others. So too does I think does the audience. You start to see a, you know a real human being beneath all you know beneath that monster, and it's because Andy Serkis plays the character that well. I think it's as good a starting point as any. We'll start with Frodo and Sam's uh, story, and then we'll get into the the Helm's Deep part of it. Because what 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 do you say about Marion Pippin at this point? You know, so it's a very long conversation that ends with trees attacking a tower. Huzzah. Um, <laughs> So, uh, just you know, thoughts on Andy Serkis? Go ahead. What, well, what do you say about him in terms of, in terms of the sheer brilliance of somebody who is able to give so much to any role, whether it's voice acting or mocap or what have you. Yeah, I don't know. I'm just going to kind of riff off the top of my head a little bit and just kind of gush like a good little fanboy. Um, he has that same quality that I would attribute to the likes of Lon Chaney Jr. and Robert England and... Um, oh, I would even say Christopher Lee to some extent. Um well, well, no, no, that's that's not that's not what I'm going for. But um, hang tight a second. I'm about to ask you two for my you two for my help with something because uh, fuck it, Doc. I can't exactly remember his name. Uh, the Doug Jones. That, that's who it was. Doug Jones. That was one of the other ones I ones I was thinking of. Um, in terms of the ability to be able to act through makeup and costume and in Andy Serkis's case even digitization and deliver performances that are so damn effective when really all things considered you've taken a lot of the tools away from them that 
or nearly so many other performers depend on. Um, things like facial muscles and, and twitches and affectations and mannerisms. Uh, you take away the eyes. You take away something like the mouth, the teeth, so you can't sneer or smile. And the difference being the antithesis of that would be someone like I would say Jim Carrey in the in the Grinch. Actually, no, scratch that. Um, uh, like Mike Myers in the Cat in the Hat, or Johnny Depp in damn near anything he's been in after Pirates of the Caribbean. It's like they're fighting the makeup and trying to kind of act through it um, to the point where it, it just becomes kind of a joke. It, it becomes distracting and cartoonish. Andy Circus throws himself, not just in terms of voice, but so physically into that role that it's easy to forget. In fact, it happens so simply and so often that you almost expect it, that you're watching motion capture. And don't get me wrong, it is absolutely superb mocap work. But you become so engrossed in everything else that he's doing that you forget that you're not watching necessary uh, per se an actual flesh and blood human being in the same way you can watch me fascinated by Sean Astin or Elijah Wood or Ian McKellen or Viggo Mortensen um, and that's what really makes it unforgettable and that's such a big reason why I don't think we're ever going to see a performance like that from somebody ever again. No, probably not. Um, you know, the, the the couple of motion capture, uh, the other motion capture character in the Force Awakens was pretty darn good herself, Miss uh, Lupita Nwanga, who plays Maz Kanata. But, um, yeah, Andrew, any thoughts on the Gollum character uh, throughout the Two Towers or Andy Serkis' performance? Well, I mean, it's on some level, Andy Serkis created a new genre of acting. Because when you look at his body of work, I mean, you know, I think Sean mentioned Lon Chaney and kind of the start of work with makeup. I mean, he's very much doing the same thing with mocap, where you look at, you know, you look at Gollum, you look at, I think he did the mocap for King Kong. You look at Caesar from the uh, from the latest round of Planet of the Apes movies, who is all played by him, like, and I guess he's also going to be directing a, a new version of the Jungle Book movie that's going to be coming out soon. Um, but, I mean, he really created an entire genre of it. I mean, you can really tell that between him and, and the, the team that he worked with, and it is really a team effort. They poured their heart and souls into this. Like it, The character and the performance and the, the pathos are so engaging. You know, I think... If anyone has to pick the one golem scene that sells it for you, it's the um, kind of the reverse shot scene that they have when Sam and Frodo are sleeping and he's talking to himself. Or he's talking to Smeagol and Gollum. Like, I mean, that sells you on the character right there. Before that point, mm-hmm. he's just kind of a creepy guy. And then after that point, you're emotionally sold on 
on you know where he goes it's from a conflict. And it, sorry, yeah, he's got an internal conflict going on where oh, apparently I, he where he's schizophrenic basically, and he has a voice in his head that is, that, that that is this uh, embodiment of the ring's corruption, telling him be a be a be a bag of shit, <laughs> you know, be terrible. Yeah. Um, and, and this and this soul, this this damaged uh, soul that still exists somewhere within him that is still Smeagol that says no that, that at heart you're a decent fellow. Yep. And I mean, I think my my kind of my closing comment on on Gollum is kind of as a character and as a synthesis, uh, Andy Serkis' performance and and the background team's work. You know, take him and compare him to most works in the Hobbit trilogy. And you find that a much more interesting and engaging character versus all the CGI orcs they did. They're like Volg and uh, and everyone like that. And it's just it's so much better when it's done that well. Um, yeah, I, 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 here's a good comparison. Stack up Thorin in, in the Battle of Five Armies, who is under dragon sickness, quote unquote. Um, but it, it is basically having a crisis of conscience and is you know, and is being you know corrupted by the gold that that, that has absorbed the essence of smog for some odd reason. Um, but that, that whole but a lot of that movie is him sort of arguing with himself. And, you know, so you compare Thorin in the, in the Battle of Five Armies to Gollum in the Two Towers, and it's and far away. And it's, it's, unfortunately, yeah, the actor is is good who plays Thorin, but. It doesn't stack up. You feel much more of the internal tension and conflict going on with with Gollum than you do with Thorin. Um, oh, absolutely. A couple of things about their about their story. One, I'm gonna do like I did with with Fellowship. Just kind of lay a couple of things out there. You guys respond to you know what tickles your fancy. <laughs> I do like when they get to the gates of Mordor and Sam and, <laughs> and Sam and Frodo are like, well, we're here. <laughs> At this point, Gollum has sort of sworn himself. He's had this argument with himself. He's decided that he's going to be a good fellow, and uh, you know he's going. He's not going to murder them in their sleep just yet. And and he sees the two. And he doesn't realize what it is. You know, it's like look, all you told me was get you to Mordor. I got you to Mordor. Oh wait, you want to go inside? Oh, what are you doing, you stupid asses? You're gonna get caught. I, I like I give you like I didn't know you wanted to go in there. Here, let me show you the back door. Um, so I enjoyed I, I enjoyed that sequence of, of him of him really being protective of Frodo and going, "Whoa, asshole! Don't you don't walk in there. You'll be caught." You know, the old Bugs Bunny. Don't go in there. It's dark. Um, so there's that. The whole extended sequence. Uh, where they're taken to us, Gilead. Uh, they're found by Faramir and his men and his uh, rangers, and they're taken to us, Gilead. And you know, you have the Nazgul who show up, and Frodo nearly puts on the ring again. Um, and at the end of it, you know, they go through the whole bit about Faramir trying to take the ring and it corrupting him, uh, which ends in his death. And Faramir has this line that I never understood. When they're about to be released, Faramir looks at Frodo and says, I guess we understand each other a little better now. What? <laughs> I don't, you, 
You've been trying to take this ring to impress your dad because he hates you and wishes you had died instead of Barmir. What do you mean Frodo understands you a little bit better? I don't... Where did you get that from? It's, just, it's a line that always bothered me. And the other thing is, the, the, along the journey, there's one beat that gets hit, hit, hit constantly, like, like like techno music. And it's... And I understand why, but it, but because there's not a lot of variation on it, it gets to me after a while, and it's really bad in The Return of the King. At least finally go somewhere, and that's boy does Sam hate Gollum. <laughs> it's over and over and over again. You, you know, it doesn't really change. There's not a lot of variation to it. It's just it's just Gollum does something. Sam hates him and almost punches him in the face, or sometimes does punch him in the face. It almost gets kind of over the top, really. It, yeah, I'm not the only one that picked up on that, right? Like it gets boring after a while. There's, you know, there's only they only have one decent human interaction, which my wife did. I made my wife watch these movies before we got before I uh, proposed to her, and said that was that if you can get through this, then you know we can think about marriage. Tells you a lot about me, doesn't it? Um, but she uh, when. When Sam goes, potatoes, mash them up, put them in a stew. She's like, hey, that's an internet meme. Like, she knew that from an internet meme of some sort that she had, see- that she had seen. She's like, oh, that's where they got that from? I'm like, yes, yes, silly woman. Um, but I love that interaction. I, I still do the, we like it raw and wriggly, you know. <laughs> and Sam's like, you're hopeless, you know. I like that interaction. It's at least it's different than the constant Gollum does something, Sam hates him. Gollum does something, Sam hates him. Gollum does something, Sam hates him. You know, and it never changes. So, yeah, I've well, grown he's trying to make amends with. Go ahead. He did try and make a, a bit of amends with him near the end of uh, near the end of, of uh, Two Towers there, where he's trying yeah, to say, Sam. "Yeah, Sam does." And it's right after that. It's right after the now we understand each other a little better line. Because he says, you know, you you understand that that you know we didn't mean for those rangers to hurt you. I hope there's no hard feelings. Yeah, yeah, that that's another yeah. off. That's another. But that, and then by that point, though, Gollum's just you know thinking of ways to kill him. <laughs> so I guess I would, yeah. Because I knew because I knew at that point Gollum had, had, had you know. He'd gone back to uh, being a crazy uh, hater, but um, yeah. Anyone want to speak on that Faramir line? I kind of got nothing, unfortunately. I'm going to have to watch it again and think about it. Can I speak about potatoes for a second? <laughs> so potatoes. Because of so, that I mean, line. Am I alone in thinking that line comes out of nowhere, or you're all with me? Just don't know why why it's in there in the first place. I'd have okay, to go now, back now. and rewatch it. I think it maybe has. I don't know if it's speaking to the, the you know, a comparison of duty as to Faramir's duty to try and bring it to the ring and or try to bring it to his father and Frodo's duty to destroy it. It's. And maybe just at that point, Faramir had given up at that point, and I- I'm gonna have to rewatch and think about it a little bit more. The sequence of events yeah. is, they, is they're captured, threatened, nearly murdered, and then Sam does this long monologue about how Barmir was killed, 
the Nazgul show up, and then they're released. I mean, maybe I'm missing something, but that's kind of it. That's their exposure to Faramir. That's why I'm saying the line, you know, when Faramir says, I guess now we know each other a little better, you never got to know them. <laughs> you don't, uh, I don't think he, his whole knowing them is Sam saying, the, you know why your brother got killed? Because he tried to take the ring too. You don't understand. The, ring's gonna, the ring will corrupt anybody that comes near it, including your brother, and that's why he's dead. Oh. Then, they, you know, then there's more fighting, and then he releases them, and he goes, I guess we know each other a little better now. And I guess the line makes no sense to me. And, yeah, nothing's... Uh, you know, now that you really put it that way, I'm kind of with you. That I'm not even going to say it's out of nowhere. I think it's, it's more so how in the world do you think that actually accomplished anything? <laughs> right. You know, they are exactly in the same position they were before you found them and, and, and went through this whole rigmarole. Um, so, all right, so moving on um, to the the Battle of Helm's Deep and the, the, the sequences of events that take us from uh, them finding the White Wizard, <laughs> the White Wizard to all the way all the way to Helm's Deep and beyond. Um, mm. I, I did enjoy the fake out there uh, where uh, the where Treebeard says, "We'll take I'm going to take you to the White Wizard," and never, the audience is made to believe that it's Saruman. And then later on, it, it's one of the, it, it's so funny because. The acceptance of magic in the movie is, is sort of an afterthought, except for this one bit where, you know, where they, where they think they're going to fight Saruman. And so, and so Aragorn says, do not let him speak. They'll put a spell on us. And not, and that's one of the few times in the movie where, where I'm just like, you sound like an imbecile. <laughs> you sound like you don't understand magic at all. To be on the, the fair side of that, let's face it, you know, in the first movie, Sauron was or Saruman was basically yelling at a mountain, and it was avalanching. Fair enough. <laughs> um, yeah, that's that, that's a good point. Saruman does pretty much disappear from this and become just about entirely damn ineffectual. I keep I got I got to come up with a better word because that's I've used that like three or four times now in the same podcast. I could just about start a drinking game around it, but. Well, I was going to say, um, he's, less, he's less a wizard and he's more of a factory foreman. You know, <laughs> cut down more trees, make more Urukai. You know, he's just running the factory at Isengard. And could someone, now, I don't want to go too far ahead, but um, but when we do talk about the ants attacking Isengard, uh, could someone explain to me why he doesn't fight back at all? He just sort of runs around like, you know, like Lucy with the kitchen on fire. Uh, oh, dear. The trees are attacking. Oh God, yes, that part. I know just exactly the part you mean. It's it's painfully, painfully awkward, especially yeah. when you've got Christopher fucking Lee, who forgets he's a wizard. Like he's, I understand, like yeah, Dungeons and Dragons. Like in Dungeons and Dragons, if you play a mage, you have to, you know, there has to be time to cast a spell and all of that. But still, he couldn't stand on top of Isengard and shoot fireballs. <laughs> like we we don't have magic missiles in this universe. I like to pause the theory. I must as, as he was uh, being attacked by trees, it comes down to three little words: "We are Groot." 
Oh, could have been just a symbol of, oh, my God, the trees are attacking, and he forgets his spells. <laughs> Literally forgot he was a wizard. It's, All right, let, let. It's fucking wood, Saruman. <laughs> Why are you, of all people, falling prey to convenient disappearance of powers? It's, it's one of those things that in, that in all of fantasy always frustrates me. Um, over the weekend, I watched uh, the CinemaSins episode uh, breaking down everything wrong with Ant-Man. And I got to admit, much as I love that movie, I agree with so much of it because it comes up so often in so, in so many movies. Um, I, I then turned around and also watched the Gaming Sins video where they talked about uh, the story mode in Mortal, in Mortal Kombat uh, 10 in which they note that Raiden, when he chooses to, is evidently able to miraculously heal people in an instant with his lightning powers. And I, I love that Jeremy I love that Jeremy actually one point points out, Hey Raiden, you know who else, you know who else could have used some healing? Liu Kang, Kung Lao, Smoke, Sub Sub Zero Katana, basically everybody that got killed off at the end of, at the end of Mortal Kombat Nine, and he was just like, "Oh fuck me, everybody's dead." Also, uh, anyone who saw Mortal Kombat Annihilation. So yeah, we do not Annihilation. So we're kind of all over the place here, but yeah, Saruman, you know, who's this powerful <laughs> yeah. wizard, so powerful he beats Gandalf in a wizard's duel. Um, suddenly forgets he's a wizard when the trees start throwing rocks at his tower. Uh, <laughs> all right, moving on. Um, I want to I want to talk about Aragon's story from you know the be- we'll move forward. Uh, I just a, a tiny quibble about Gandalf's rebirth. Um, I come back mm-hmm. to you now. Turn of the tide. Uh, he goes. He delivers a great monologue how he beat the Balrog. You know, I smote my enemy on the side of the mountain. Great, perfect. And then he's explaining that he's no longer Gandalf the Grey. He is Gandalf the White, and he comes back to you now at the turn of the tide. And there's no further explanation given as to how this character was essentially resurrected by what entity. Yeah. None of it's mentioned. I don't care if it's in the book and, 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 and there's an explanation. There's no explanation in the movie. He just is. And apparently, you know, he's reborn with, with new powers, more powers, and he gets a magic horse. And it's just it's one of those narratives, and this is what I mean by, by movie craft um, and showing, not telling, or making sure your narrative is solid. It's a quibble. You can probably overlook it in terms of the overall storytelling. You don't, I guess you don't need to know, but I think... It is one of the drawbacks in the narrative, you know, at least in an extended yeah. edition. Could someone explain to me how this character came back to life? It, yeah, it, well, it could have done with a little more explanation of just what exactly the difference between gray and white is. Um, right. That's that's not really fle- really fleshed out at all. It's it's like a joke that. Um, I remember, I know way too many people named Jeremy, um, that my buddy and future podcast co-host, Jeremy Hulsoff, uh once pointed out about Hulk Hogan in WCW. How in, in one show, start of the show, he comes out in the black and white like he's been 
donning for about two years or so as Hollywood Hulk Hogan. And then all of a sudden, for the main event, he comes out in the red and yellow again. And Jeremy says he remembers he and his buddy Steve, God rest your soul, big man, um, actually yelling at the TV, all he did was change his underwear. (laughs) (laughs) Because that... Because well that that's about how I feel about it. that's about <laughs> all the explanation that that we get. What what's the process here? How, how exactly does this work? What's the rhyme the rhyme and reason? What and just exactly what difference does it make between being Gandalf the Gray and Gandalf the White? Like you said, how does the resurrection and, work? Is it is this like Orin? Is it like Orin in Final Fantasy X, where he just basically gets killed and pisses him off and now he just wanders the earth until he fucks up the person who killed him. That's the thing like, he that does talk about I'm here to you know, I'm I'm here to do work. I'm I'm here to help in the fight against the forces of evil and when that's done I will go away. And he does. And he says that the, even at the end of the movie, my time has come. I've done I've done all the things that I was sent back to do. Sent back by whom? <laughs> okay. <laughs> you know, how yeah. does that work so what magical entity sent you back? So you know, like we get so much backstory about Sarum, about Sauron, and what Sauron is, and what he means to Middle Earth. I would have liked to know what the opposing magical force was. Um, so that 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 always irked me. Uh, but we, you know, the, he meets up with them, steers Aragorn towards Rohan, and says, "Look, never mind, Merry and Pippin, they're fine. Never mind, Frodo and Sam, they're fine. You have bigger fish to fry." So, you know, Saruman and the uh, the Urukai are coming for Rohan, and there are things there are things to do. Um, a bit of a quibble with J.R.R. Tolkien in naming characters. Stop naming people evil McDoobad. Okay, it, I, I honestly fucking Grimer Wormtongue, and he turns out to be a bad guy. No. <laughs> Not Grimer Wormtongue. <laughs> I remember watching that in the theaters, and it was just like, like, oh, it turned out Grimer Wormtongue turned on the king. No, like, you know, I can't help but I can't help but think, but that there's something shady about this fellow you call Sinestro. <laughs> <laughs> Lord Sidious? He's insidious? Are you kidding me? <laughs> yeah, it's it's one of the weaker things in the movie. And like, and I understand, you know, Grimer Wormtongue uh, was another character who was, you know, seduced by the, you know, by the idea of being on the right side of a war. Fine, but then call him John. <laughs> you know, call, 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 call him Buddy Hackett. Call, call him something other than, you know. Bad guy McTurncoat, you know anything besides besides like Benedict Arnold. I'm okay with that. Go do what you got to do with this character, but please stop naming them. You know, stop stop naming somebody who was once good and became evil. Something you know blatantly ne- negative. Um, <laughs> I told you not to let them in. <laughs> Another funny bit that he does. Those ineffectual soldiers. <laughs> yeah. Oh, come on. McKellen plays that beautifully, though. Oh, you wouldn't separate an old man from his walking stick, would you? 
<laughs> I think he grabs uh, Legolas' arm, and they both walk in their arm in arm like he's a dotty old man. <laughs> and then they beat the crap out of everybody. <laughs> <laughs> so um I'm gonna I'm gonna allow you guys to sort of talk about the um especially you, Andrew. I know you had a lot to say about the Battle of Helm's Deep. Um you have this I don't wanna say forced romance between because it's not a romance, he outwardly rejects her. <laughs> um, but you have you have uh Aowen who ends up getting the hot for uh for Aragorn. I, I will say this because it does come up in the Cinema Sins bit uh, with this, and I think, I think it is worth talking about the Peter Jackson's attempt to fake tension uh, when they're they're attacked by the wargs and Aragorn goes over the cliff and everyone thinks he's dead. It's like, come on, yeah. I, I don't the audience's time with this. You all know he's not fucking dead. Yeah, but it leads to one of the most awesome hero shots when he pushes that door open that you've ever seen. It does. I'm not. You know, there should have been a guy. Playing yeah, but I, but but I, did, no. but I don't know if it was really worth it for that whole sequence because, yeah, you you really could have probably cut that and subverted that whole moment, and I don't think you would have really lost anything of value. Well, aside from that one shot, the, the I feel like if you really like wanted to have, if you really wanted to have Aragorn show up late. I think they should have known he survived, but had to keep going. And they should, you know, they could have been. I think a better way of showing tension in the movie should have been Legolas and Gimli going, "We have to go back for Aragorn. He went over the cliff. We, you know, we have to get him." And Theoden saying, "No, we have to get to Helm's Deep." And they were like, "You know, we, like, we are not, we, we are not a Rohan." He was like, "If you were, if you ride with us, then you are. You are in the service of the king, and we need to go." Aragorn can take care of himself, and you know, and them feeling like them visibly feeling conflicted about leaving him behind. Then there's no fake out. You every you've said he's alive. They just can't go back and get him at this point. He'll show up later, and then you can still do the same shot. And it'll still look awesome, and you won't have a fake surprise that oh look, Aragorn's alive, and Greener Worm comes a bad guy. <laughs> Well, I, I don't know if necessarily, I mean, it does kind of create that tension, but on some level, I think they were almost doing that to try and get in a couple of other scenes. Like, I mean, for one thing, they got in that extra flashback with uh, with Liv Tyler, with them having conversations that thematically feed into kind of his taking on the kingship. And then you need an excuse to get him kind of out in the world to go spot the, the 10,000-strong Uruk-hai army to... So, again, he can take that information back to Helm's Deep. So, I mean, I get what you're saying. I can also see the flip side on how they were how they were just trying to maneuver him to take care of a couple of other points. Well, like I said, I'm okay with him being separated from the group. I'm okay with him going over the cliff. I'm not okay with then John Reese davies trying to deliver this line about how Aragorn fell, you know, and then you ha- and this fake-out moment you have with, with Eowyn. You know, with the I don't, I don't feel like it when... I guess the audience knows, or, or like, narratively speaking, I guess the audience shouldn't have known. Like, if you're dumb and you don't think Aragorn makes it to the end, you know, I guess you could. You, there, there's a thought that maybe you could have thought he died, but I just, I just don't buy it. I, it's, I feel like. Well, anyone who saw the trailer knows there's still a scene where he's going to be standing on the wall with his sword. So it's like we haven't seen that scene yet. So obviously he survives. 
reminding me of? It's reminding me of a story that my dad likes to tell about the first time that um, his second wife ever watched the movie A River Runs Through It. Um, don't know if either of you have ever watched it. Um, about eh, first fourth or so of the movie, um, uh, the McLean brothers, um, in a bit of drunken mischief, decide to steal a rowboat and decide they're going to take it whitewater rafting. And of course, the boat. And of course, the boat gets wrecked. And there's a long shot where their friends are on the beach and they're and they're looking at it, going washing, going washing by. And my stepmother famously asked, "Are they dead?" <laughs> and, and 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 dad dad always said he just looked at him and said, "Yes, the movie's only thirty minutes long." <laughs> <laughs> the, the, other, the, other 90 minutes, the other 90 minutes or so is credits. <laughs> I suppose there are people in the audience who, who, when they, you know, girlfriends who, when they were dragged to go against their will to go see The Two Towers, really thought Eric fucking Beagle Mortensen bought it. And were legit yeah, surprised. But, <laughs> <Wait>. <laughs> yeah, just, but, but that, that's about like how in the mid-season finale of the third season of Arrow, plug your ears, kid, spoilers, um... Rachel Ghoul shish kebabs Oliver Queen, and he goes tumbling off a cliff. It's the mid-season finale. Uh, of course, he's not dead. You're you're just trying too damn hard. Yeah, but it's 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 like it was one of those scenes that almost takes took me out of the movie the first time I saw it because I'm like, really? What what are we doing here? Um, I, again. If, if, if the other characters in the movie know he's alive but can't get him at that time, I'm fine with it. The fact that they all think he's dead irritates the shit out of me. Um, so mo- moving on from that, unless there's a burning desire to continue this conversation. Um, nope. Let's talk about it. Go ahead. No, I just said nope. Nope. Okay. Um, so let's talk about Helm's Deep and... Uh, I want to lean on Andrew at this point, kind of talk about uh, the first time I watched this with uh, with Melissa. Uh, one of the things I was telling her I was just like, if you ever wanted to know what um, what oh what not what is the phrase I'm looking for here now? Uh, basically, no, I was thinking um, the phrase they use for when you're sieging a castle. Uh, yes, yeah, siege. siege. Say. say what? Uh, siege warfare, siegecraft, yeah. Siegecraft, yeah. I said if you ever, if you, you know, if you ever wanted to know what siegecraft looked like, this is it. This is a really good example of siegecraft up to a point. Um, and 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 that and the point is when they toss a dwarf onto a bridgeway and two men defeat in a single army. But <laughs> we're not there yet. Um, uh, Helm's deep, and I'm going to lean on Andrew at this time to sort of talk about this is a really good example of siegecraft. Uh, you, have, you have a marching army attempting to enter a castle. And, you know, when you, when you think about high fantasy or you think about the Middle Ages and what these things and what, what, what their actual purpose was, you know, a, a, a castle was supposed to keep people out of it. Um, and you, de- you designed defenses in order to keep, you know, the armies at bay. And the army's object was to get inside the castle. So how do you do those things? Well, that's one of the things I like about Helm's Deep, is the is the is the the fine detail they used in what the different armies were doing 
to uh, keep the other from achieving their objectives. So never mind the acting and the performances. What you have is sort of a how-to in, in both ways, you know, how to defeat an advancing army who's, uh, who's trying to get inside your castle, you know, and, and how to siege a castle. So, uh, Andrew, why don't you um, sort so of talk about that, what you liked about it, what, what, what problems you had with it, if any, that sort of thing. I'm going to try and uh, – my background's in, in uh, history, and I've, I have a, a pretty good fascination with, with – uh, uh, war, uh, you know, military history, but I, I'm not going to try and get too much into that nitpick. But I mean, it's, it is a really good example of what siege warfare would look like to an extent. Like, I mean, I would probably say the better version of that is actually what they did at um, during the Battle of uh, um, Pelennor Fields, where you actually have some of the big siege engines like catapults, like trebuchets, like um, you know, very large battering rams and things like that. But you know, this. This one definitely conveys it really well where you're trying to you're trying to keep the one side off you long enough for the um you know your other forces to come and the, the phrase word that they would use is relieve the siege. And literally what they would do sometimes uh like in the 12th century um one army would siege the castle and they would literally talk and come to terms and say that if no other army can arrive to uh to relieve the castle by X number of dates, then we'll give up. So it turns into a little bit of a little bit of a, a waiting game and somewhat of a of a um, a race against time as well. And I mean, they kind of set it up very well here as well, where you've got the um, you've got Carl Urban's Aomer showing up with his twenty five hundred. Uh, we'll hear him to <coughs> pardon me, receive, relieve the siege as they're trying to hold out. And I mean, you know, a lot of what you see there is accurate. Like they have, they have multiple lines of defense. They have a lot of elevated positions. Um, one of the things they actually did was they specifically changed the shape of the wall from what Tolkien described it as, because that would have been more accurate as to how they would have built that to, to push a siege back and right down to using explosives to, to, um, you know, blow the hole in the wall. If you ever heard the phrase hoisted by your own batard, a batard is actually an explosive device they used to plan against castle doors to try and blow them open. Hmm. So, in your opinion, cinematically, how does Helm's Deep stack up to you? It stacks up very well. Like, I mean, you know, I've talked about it a little bit. I mean, you know, the authenticity of it and the feeling that this is a real world, they they knock right out of the park. It's It's well shot. You don't you know, they know when to, to do a quick cut. They know when not to do a quick cut. Um, quite honestly, the only thing I think that I think they might have cut out of the movie was during the run-up to the siege, which I can talk about separately because I think that's fantastic, they kind of show there is a... there is basically an Urukai commander. And at one point you see him, he gets up on a rock, he raises his sword to rally his troops, and then they start the siege. And later on, after the walls breached, you see him again, and he kills, um, I don't know the character's name, but the elf commander. And they don't come back to him at all. And I have a feeling, like, maybe they had left out some kind of fight between him and Aragorn. Yeah, I honestly don't remember it all that well. I think when I rewatched it again, um, I had I was distracted. So I'm sure somebody listening, you know, maybe Winfrey, who's listening, uh, and playing the home game, as we like to say, I'll probably uh, mention it. 
Here's my one complaint about Helms Deep, and I'll, I'll, I'll let Sean in on the discussion. And I said, I, mm-hmm. I said it jokingly before, but I really have a problem with this. I don't have a, so much of a problem with Gimli uh, saying, you know, you're going to have to toss me. You're going to have to toss me. Um, but, you know, he understood the, the nature of what was happening, and they needed to get across to, to this entranceway. And so he was like, well, you know, generally speaking, I don't want to be tossed, but, you know, in this particular, you know, it's a life or death, so go ahead and you toss me. I don't have a problem with that. I have a problem, and this happens a lot from this point on, where, you know, where Viggo Mortensen has, you know, hero powers where he can take on an entire army of bad guys by himself. Stormtroopers, <laughs> uh, attack droids, Urukai, orcs, no ability to fight because one guy can take them out it, 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 to the point where it almost erases the tension. But you have Gimli and Aragorn standing on this, granted, narrow walkway, but at some point, I've been in mosh pits. You're going to get run over. I don't care how fast you're swinging your sword. You will be overwhelmed by the sheer volume of people. They should, they, they should have ran them the fuck over. You know, the first few guys get stabbed by Aragorn's sword and, you know, and Gimli's axe, and then the rest of them just walk on them. Nope. Instead, they somehow managed to knock hundreds of orcs off of that uh, off of that narrow passageway, and and this is the beginning of Peter Jackson and, and, and the, this really the the Battle of the Five Armies. But this is the beginning of epic battle silliness syndrome that Peter Jackson gets, <laughs> where he starts to where it's just like I don't think we should do believable fight sequences. Let's get retarded. So and, and so, like I said, it's fun to watch. But if I'm going to go back and really criticize something, it's it's almost intolerable to me. It's, it's, it's that asinine. Sean, you know, I think you guys have really nailed just about everything about Helm's Deep, except that I will say that when it comes to how to shoot battle sequences, you don't get much more textbook. Um, the pacing is magnificent. Oh, sure. It's it's wonderfully, wonderfully staged. Um, you can... Uh, the, the atmosphere is absolutely ideal. But most importantly, and this is what so many big battles in so many other movies get wrong, you can see and understand everything... That's going on. It's the framing. It's it's (laughs) shot in a way that even for as fast as everything is moving, you can still keep pace. Michael Bay. I was going to avoid the low-hanging fruit, but you have apparently decided to not only pluck it, but make (laughs) that. Michael Bay. Michael Bay. Yes, Michael fucking Bay. Um, but <laughs> Michael Bay, because Michael Bay, because why tell the audience what's happening? <laughs> um, you're asking me to tell the audience what's happening? No, I'm the director of the movie. My, my, Michael Bay's philosophy is: why should the audience know what's happening? Oh, oh, okay, okay. I missed the first part of that snarky remark. Um. Yeah, Transformers being the most famous, but hardly the only example of this. Um, 
it's the the battle manages to not to not require drama memes. That, that that's what I love most about it is is, is you never get a sense of unforgiving motion sickness watching all this utter chaos going on around you. Um, nothing is too tight. Nothing is too nothing is too far away. Just outstanding all the way across the board, and also I cannot say enough wonderful things about the hardworking men and women who individually crafted each of the props, each of the weapons, each suit of armor, each helmet for every single person in these movies and went to notoriously great pains to make each one unique. Do you have any thoughts about my criticism? Yeah, I was say, do you have any thoughts on my criticism of the sequence with Aaron Ron and Gimli on the narrow passage? It's okay if you don't. Well, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm willing to suspend my disbelief for that one. The only other thing I can think of is that at that point you have. If we look at ages here, you have Aragorn, who's 87, has probably been fighting for 60 years, and Gimli, who I think is about 100 and has probably been fighting for 80 of those years, against, from what I can infer, Urukai, who are about two months old. But they're fighting Urukai. They're fighting Urukai, but they're, they're cannon fodder. They're not meant to be particularly smart, and eventually once two or three guys go down... The rest of the group starts to say, okay, wait a second, let's hang back a little bit. But other than that, I'm I'm willing to suspend my disbelief on that one. I do have sure. one <clears throat> I do have one thing I do want to kind of expand upon in uh when it comes to Helm's Deep, if that's okay. Sure. And that's the build to it. Like I mean, I think if Helm's Deep is great, but I mean the build to it in terms of where it where you take the characters. Like, I mean, you know, we talked a little bit about Orlando Bloom, but I mean, you know, one of the things that worked was, again, his chemistry with, with Mortensen. I mean, maybe that just goes to Viggo Mortensen, but, you know, you talk about those those scenes that trigger you in this trilogy. This, the sequence that triggers me is when um, they're in the, the process of press ganging all the, uh, you know, all the to use the military vernacular, military-age males into service to fight the Urukai, and uh, they're in the armory, and everyone's getting armed up, and basically uh, Aragorn and Legolas start arguing, and uh, he, uh, well, Legolas, Legolas tells them that they're going to die in Elvish, which I'll spare everyone from actually reciting myself because I have that line memorized, and Aragorn responds, then I will die as one of them. I think that's one of those points along his journey from going to being reluctant to kind of accepting who he is. And then he has this wonderful follow-up scene with with one of the, you know, like a 13-year-old kid who's who's holding this sword and he's just looking so forlorn and everyone comes up to him and uh, swings the sword for a second and says, this is a good sword. There's always hope. Like, that's one of those scenes that just gets right to me. Mm-hmm. Um... As far as scenes that get to me, Sam's speech, Sam's, uh, speech at the end, uh, at the end of the Iliad sequence, yeah, it's, it's amazing. Um, not a whole lot. I've started chanting uh, every time he does that. Not a whole lot. Let's say at the end of the two towers, 
Um, a very, very, very minor nitpick. Why is the turkey cooked? No, did you notice that? They, That's a good when point. They, when they raid Saruman's <laughs> pantry, I, the, 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 the long bottom leaf is in barrels. There's apples. I'm good with all of that. Then there's a, cooked, a fully cooked turkey floating in the water <laughs> that Pippin grabs. Dinner time for Sauron ceremony almost? <laughs> Why is there a fully cooked turkey in the pantry? Because shut up. <laughs> <laughs> all right. I'm just, anyone else notice that? They don't even just let it float by. Like, all right, fully cooked turkey. Here we go. Well, if it was an uncooked like, oh, turkey... If it was an uncooked turkey, then everyone would be wondering why uh, Mary and Pippin don't have salmonella. Well, they should have just let it pass, is my point, if they're going to do that. This is so weird. Like, why? I watched it the other day, and I'm just, and that was literally my only thought was, what, yeah, they're doing this whole thing. And, and Dominic Bonnie and, and uh, Billy Boyd's performance uh, is, is utterly amazing. I, I talked about this with the Hateful Eight and Kurt Russell, like, you know, physical acting. Um, acting with like your mustache, if you're Kurt Russell and the hateful eight, Billy Boy, uh, Dominic Monaghan. Um, I'm assuming I, I assume this is the actor, Dominic Monaghan, where you know where uh, they're talking about like, oh, don't be hasty, and then <laughs> Pippin, uh, um, <laughs> Pippin grabs his pipe, <laughs> just the, does this really like really slick maneuver with his wrist, and he has this shitty and grin on. I love it. That whole exchange when they're in the pantry is hilarious. <laughs> but, um, okay, if you're listening to us live, uh, here's where things are going to get dicey. We have about two minutes left of recording uh, of live time, and then we're going to go dead. We still have a whole other movie to discuss. Um, hopefully, Block Talk Radio will allow the almost full hour of recording of post-recording time um, though there's always a chance that Blog Talk... Um, uh, yeah, that's never guaranteed. <laughs> yeah. So at any given time, this conversation <laughs> may come to a dead halt. But if you're listening to us live, uh, I certainly appreciate you coming back to Long Road to Ruin. Um, in two weeks, we'll be doing The Hobbit. Hopefully, Andrew will come back, and uh, we can all take turns ranting about those movies. Uh, in the meantime, uh, come back, listen to the third hour uh, discussion of Return of the King, and, uh, you know, again, thanks for joining us here on The Long Road to Ruin. Uh, and, I, and if we do get cut off before there's an official end of the podcast, I apologize. I don't have any control over it. It's just fucking blog talk. Fucking blog talk. Okay. Um, burning desires as far as the two towers. Anything left unsaid? Those are basically my quibbles and my thoughts, uh, topics for discussion. Andrew, any burning desires? I think we're good for right now. Sean? Um, this is, along the hero's journey, it's pretty much the, uh, heart, in my opinion, of the descent into hell. Uh, like this, and I think about the, uh, well, depending on whose character you're thinking of, uh, like this and about the first half of Return of the King, before things really kind of start to ascend and come full, and come full circle, it's, uh, what can you say? I mean, it, it's the trite comparison everybody's going to make. Basically, it is both sequentially and in spirit the Empire Strikes Back of the of the entire trilogy. Um, 
but it is absolutely outstanding. It is worth watching for so, 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 so very many scenes, um, not the least of which being that the Battle of Helm's Deep is a sight to behold. Um, I don't think we mentioned it, but the interstitial bits with Mary Pippin and the Ents, I always find it absolutely hilarious, Um, especially Mary and Pippin's mounting exasperation. Uh, It's very short on Christopher on Christopher Lee, um, which, of course, I guess beats the hell out of the fact that in the theatrical version of the next one, he's not in it whatsoever. We'll talk about that. Um, overall, a, absolutely a fitting successor to Fellowship and sets up Return of the King beautifully. Well, funny you mention uh, Saruman, who I wish they had... Of all the things I wish they had included in Return of the King and maybe cut instead, I wish they had included the uh, the the seizing of Isengard by uh, by Aragorn and Gandalf and that whole thing. That I, I I always felt like in the theatrical version that there was a lot of stuff left unsaid and undone. Like you don't know what Saruman's fate is. He's just there, you know. At the end of the two towers, he's just like getting running around like Lucy, and they never go back to it. And I remember thinking in the theater, what are they doing with this guy? And at the time, I didn't know if they were going to do the burning of the Shire or not. So, you know, I, I, so by the time the Return of the King ends, I'm just like, oh, they just kind of just left Saruman there. Maybe they'll do a, Maybe he'll do a separate movie with uh, with Saruman burning the Shire um, at a later date or something, or you know, or whatever. They'll do a TV series the way things are now, but. Uh, but you know, when you go back and you watch the extended version, oh well, that explains it. He fucking falls. <laughs> you know, he, uh, he gets stabbed and then shoved off the top and then lands uh, ever so horribly on the uh, on the spike. Um, but I really enjoyed that sequence. I, I I really really like the exchange between Gandalf and Saruman. Um, again. They say things, they give exposition, and there's no explanation for the exposition. They're like, Saruman no longer has any power. Why? Mm. <laughs> when that's he stops. Actually, Go ahead. So I was about to say, that's actually one of the, one of the things that I wish they explained a little bit better in this movie. Um, the whole breaking of the staff thing, because they came up with it as a, as a really neat visual, I mean, it happens twice. Once during the during the Saruman scene, and then later when um, the Witch King of Angmar does it to to uh, Gandalf, and they don't quite understand explain how that works. Which I think it's just kind of left out there. Yeah. Well, it's even before he breaks the staff, he's like, Saruman has no more power. What did did you put it all into making Urukai, and you just ran out? Do you need power ups? I don't. I don't understand how this. <laughs> I don't understand how magic in this world works. Give him an you know, ether. Like no, give him some salts. <laughs> I, 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 I made the D and D crack before, but you know the D and D magic made sense. It just takes you know it takes time to cast a spell. Okay, I get that. Um, but to suddenly say you have no power and give no explanation as to why, I'm like I don't I don't understand this. But um, no, then you have you know Grimer Wormtongue. Uh, you know, gets smacked around like the bitch that he is, and he stabs him, and you know, dies. Okay, so we have a bit, we have all that, and then we have the sequence with uh, with Pippin who looks into the palantir, and Saruman thinks he's the one with the ring, 
And so, you know, you have the separation of Mary and Pippin. In the extended sequence where um, where Pippin is, ex- I keep getting them confused, Mary is the one um, who looks into the Palantir and um, <laughs> he smoked it. No, I'm getting them backwards. It's Pippin, right? Who looks into the Palantir and Mary is the one who... Uh, who ends up riding with Ro- with the with the Rohan army? Am I right about that? Yes. <laughs> okay. Look at the casting characters. I always get the the names mixed up. In any case, um, <laughs> you have the one like you smoke too much, Pip. <laughs> I, I, why do you always have to look? Um, so that 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 sets up Gandalf taking off for uh, for Gondor with with him, uh, which I, which I liked all of that. Um, so let me let me jump right into one of the first things that really really bothered me about this movie. Now don't get me wrong, I love this movie. It's one of my favorites. I enjoy watching it over and over and over again. Like I said, the, the, I'm one of the few people who will defend to my death the multiple endings because I absolutely think each one of those endings is needed from, you know, the, the coronation to the returning to the sire, to the, uh, the whole wedding sequence to, you know, the, the leaving at the shore to Sam coming back home. Every single one of them is needed where I have criticisms though, are things like the ghost army. You know, we we'll talk about MacGuffins you know, and, and things where, where I think the good guys get off a little too easy. I was talking to my dad about this today. I get that in terms of getting Aragorn, you know, to be the king of Gondor, uh, what its purpose was. I also get its purpose in that without them, they would have lost the battle, the battle of Pelennor Fields. They, they would have lost the, the Sauron. Sauron would have won the war. But still, really, you needed to give him a ghost army. They, they, there couldn't have just been another group of men somewhere out there for him to get. They needed literally an, inde- an indefeatable ghost army. Who, when they, sh- who after, and I would have been pissed if I were Theoden. You know, like half his people have been killed at this point. You know, half the people in half the soldiers of Gondor have been killed, and in comes this ghost army, just takes everybody out, and it's like, where were you an hour ago? It, it's just, I, 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 I know it's. There's nothing Peter Jackson could do. It's in the story. It's a huge part of it, but it's just ridiculous to me. Well, well, what do I add to that? You, you pretty much, you pretty much summed it up. <laughs> um, <laughs> Ghost Army. What the fuck, yo? <laughs> like J.R.R. Tolkien's like wow I've really made the bad guys in this too powerful what do I do here that's him smoking pot um, and, and ghost armor God. <laughs> let's run with this and then the dam broke you know like that's what I was expecting next you know and an earthquake <laughs> made the tower in Mordor fall down Saruman busted his eye Andrew help me out here <laughs> I will admit that the uh the way that the uh you know the the uh ground fell apart at the end of the movie to affect everybody but the good guys was awfully awfully convenient but <laughs> as far as the ghost army goes I'm again I'm one of those people who's kind of willing to overlook that sort of stuff so it works for the dramatic tension and again I think it's it's 
one of those things where, again, it's part of Aragorn's journey. So I'm kind of willing to move past it. And the effect was really cool as well. So Yeah, it looks great. To a degree, I agree with the narrative perspective. I just, you know, why not, why not give the good guys guns? You know, why, why, why not get, why not give the you know the good guys uh, you know uh, the Death Star at this point? There comes a point where like, come on, they, they, you, you gave them, you gave the good guys such an impossible. It's like two kids playing in the yard, and one goes, "I have a shield, an impenetrable shield. Nothing you do works." <laughs> But you're willing to overlook it, so I guess I, I guess for, for the sake of this podcast, I, I will move on. But boy, does that irk me! I literally, I, <laughs> also I, talking I, to waiting. somebody here who really likes the movies John Carter of Mars and Jupiter Ascending. So there you go. You like Jupiter Ascending? It was well intentioned. All right, plugs everyone. No, 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 I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, it would be better as a miniseries than a movie. I've heard nothing but terribleness about Jupiter Ascending. I actually really nothing. liked it. That's that's a conversation for another day. Let's move on. Fair enough. All right. All right. So 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 moving past the stupid ghost army. Um, let me uh, talk about another sequence here that, uh, that that troubles me. And I just I didn't quite understand how this worked. Maybe you guys can fill me in here. So you've got Gollum leading them uh, to the spider Shelob, and um, he has to get rid of Sam. And he, the way he sets Sam up is while he's sleeping, he makes it look like Sam ate all of the lambda spread. And Sam, Sam is led to has Sam thinks he he ate it all. And then later on, as he's climbing down, you know, because he's been dis- summarily dismissed by Frodo in a fit of anger, he sees the lambda spread that's been thrown away, and suddenly he has this realization: Oh, I didn't eat it. Did you have amnesia, sir? Has it been that long of a trip? It just it, it just it was just an odd thing. Like I didn't like I didn't feel like there needed to be a reason for him to go back up. Um, you know, just I, I might have some, maybe something stronger. You know, like him just having a crisis of conscience, saying, "No, I don't care that he sent me away. I will go back. I will be by his side. Nothing he can say will send me away." Not, oh, I didn't eat the lamb just bread. Ha! Colin truly is a villain. I have to go back and save Frodo. Like, oh. I'm more annoyed that he threw the rest of the lambus bread over the cliff when he found it. <laughs> well, it was not good anymore. See, it's been lying in the dirt. No, that doesn't work for you. Yeah, I don't know. I guess it's just kind of a, an emotional beat. Yep. Okay. I, sorry, go ahead. Finish what you were saying. Oh, that was it. Okay, Sean... Any um any thoughts about I mean I want to get to the the, the talk about the battle of Pelennor Fields and the the whole uh, sequence once they're you know they're they're actually in um, Mordor but uh, again I'm just 